The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live. Turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. Well, it's that moment you've been waiting for at seven minutes after eight. Time for the Forum at eight, the morning after the night before. That was Sona 2016. Now, President Jacob Zuma has delivered the ninth State of the Nation address in which he said that our democracy was functional and stable while raising concerns on the demon of racism. The president announced three, uh, announced a few new measures to curb wasteful expenditure as the country battles a weakened economy and a dwindling tax revenue base. The day was not with Without its fair share of drama, of course, uh, members of the Congress of the People and the Economic Freedom Fighters walked out of Parliament during the President's speech. So on the Forum at 8 this morning, we're going to digest, we're going to unpack and analyse the State of the Nation <coughs> Address with uh, John Steenhazen from the Democratic Alliance. We also have Mbuiseni Ndlozi from the EFF and Ngabayomzi um, Kwankwa from the UDM. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming through. Thank you, thank you, thank you so for much. having us. Um, the one thing that really struck me last night at the beginning of these proceedings was it seemed as though there wasn't consensus or clarity or perhaps members simply do not know or understand the rules of parliament. Is that a fair statement, John Stianazen? Well, I don't think it's a, f- a fair statement at all. It was very clear there was one person last night in the house who didn't understand the rules and that was the speaker herself. Uh, continuously uh, wanting to hold people accountable in terms of the rules, but not being prepared to be accountable to those rules herself. I think she made a remarkable mistake last night by coming to the House and trying to invent rules, unilaterally remove rules that are in the rule book. Uh, and in doing so, she undermines Parliament and she undermines her credibility as Speaker. And once again, very clear last night, not the Speaker's hat on her head, the anti-national chairperson's hat on her head, protecting President Zuma at all costs. Um, Richard Calland, um, now, now he's on record as saying that um, the role that the Speaker plays as chairperson of the ANC and the National Assembly creates what he calls an inescapable difficulty and uh, that it creates a conflict of interest. Would you agree with that, Ndlozi? Yes, I think, uh, <clears throat> I mean, it's a problem we identified at the beginning of the Fifth Democratic Parliament that uh, Balaga is conflicted. Um, and and she has been put in many instances in a very difficult position to have to protect the individuals of the NC, in particular the president. But yes, last night it was a, it was worse than that. It was a I, I will be fair to everyone else except the EFF. I, I mean, was uh, that the case? Yes, I mean you 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 will see in the ways in which she recognizes people. And, and there's a problem that we have experienced from the beginning. You stand, you want to address the speaker. She says no for the first three times, either gives you an opportunity and tells you or tells you to sit down. But everyone else is putting their hands up and the EFF, you guys stand up, Madam Speaker, Madam Speaker. No, no, everyone stands and says Madam Speaker, including Naledi Pando. The South Africans watch. They watch Parliament every day. And the frustration of heavy... You, there is no other way. There are people who raise their hands and they stay very far mm. from Parliament. It, and it's not in the rules that you must raise your hand. You must stand and say point of order. That's it. And then she's obliged in terms of the rules. She can't say, no, 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 I don't want to recognize you. 
She can't, according to the rules, she must firstly hear what is the point of order, then make a ruling that the point of order is incorrect or it doesn't refer or uh, 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 sustain it. Uh, and so there are two problems. One is she does everything in her power against everyone to protect President Jacob Zuma. But number two, her attitude towards the EFF uh, uh, is, 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 if anything, most discriminatory. Mr. Panka, would you agree with that? Do you think that um, the speaker treats the EFF differently than she does everybody else? I think last night she did. Uh, if you looked at a few instances where uh, our colleagues from the African National Congress uh, raised their hands or asked to be recognized by the speaker, she recognized them almost immediately. But, you know, the, the EFF uh, colleagues from the EFF had to literally uh, beg and plead uh, the speaker to actually recognize them. But I think the other problem in general is with the inconsistent application of the rules, where a person would decide that today I'm not going to recognize you, even though the rules actually make it clear, as, as, as Nclosia has actually said, that when you want to be recognized, you must stand up and ask to be recognized, and the speaker has no choice but to recognize you, hear your point of order, and, and then after that, uh, make a ruling. But you can't say I'm not recognizing you, I'm not willing to recognize you, and then a, co- a comrade or a colleague from the ANC stands up and then without being recognized, sometimes they start speaking and the speaker doesn't say anything about that. It can't be like that. Remember, uh, parliament is not parliament of, it doesn't belong to the ANC, it's our parliament. We may at times not agree as political parties with some of the tactics that we use, but the bottom line is every political party that is there has a mandate to represent a particular (coughs) constituency and we have to respect that as Democrats. John C. Nathan, do you uh, agree with the tactics that the EFF employs? Well, it's not my place to comment on what parties' uh, tactics they deploy in the House. I mean, we had a strategy last night, and I think we, we implemented I think we got our message across about the 8.3 million South Africans sitting at home without work. 1.9 million of those have lost their job under the Zuma presidency and his job-killing legislation. Um, and you know, it's, it's parties must make their own choices. They represent their own bases. And they have their own programs, and we we didn't choose to adopt the same strategy they used yesterday evening. But what I do think is problematic is this: is the behaviour of the speaker and some of the presiding officers in the lead up to Sona, already identifying at press conferences who troublemakers were, uh, and you know singling out individuals and parties as potential troublemakers on the evening. Uh, but when the African National Congress's Youth League came out very strongly saying that they were going to come to Parliament and beat up MPs and process mm. them, etc. Not a word from the Chief Whip of the ANC, not a word from the Speaker of Parliament. About she did condemn them. I, I specifically remember during the week she I, did. She did come out condemning them. I don't recall her condemning them at all, and certainly not in the news conferences that she had when she was identifying potential culprits uh, in the House. And I think that's problematic to go for a Speaker to go into a, uh, a Sona debate like this with these preconceived ideas and prepackaged, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, prepackaged manoeuvres, um, because she, it then sets it up in a situation where <coughs> she can't possibly be seen as a fair and um, unbiased arbiter of decisions and points in the House. So what's the way forward? I mean, what is going to break this particular impasse? Because there always seems to be a problem with the rules and the application, the interpretation thereof. No, there's no problem with the rules in Parliament. Well, no clearly problem. there is, because no. you spend an inordinate amount of time, you know, uh, uh, going back and forth about what is or isn't. Uh-uh. We do that because of the speaker, not because there's a problem of rules, 
not because there's a problem of uh, interpretation of the rules. She knows exactly what the rules are. She knows exactly what the interpretation of the rules are. She chooses to trump them. This is a diagnosis. I mean, uh, uh, to come here and mislead South Africans that Parliament has... Uh, we, we went to debate the rules for the whole year. We worked on them collectively. We disagreed sharply. We disagreed about the coming of the removal of members by the white shirts. Who must they belong to? Who must they be accountable to? We had all that debate last year. Everybody participated, including the speaker herself. There is no other parliament that is so well versed with the rules than this one since 1994 because we went through the process of like a radical review of the rules, rule by rule, sentence by sentence. There's no problem of understanding of the rules. What you have is an illegitimate president who must come to a parliament that is legitimate. And then in the process of having to come and account to an illegitimate parliament, the speaker wants to turn us into what the president is, an illegitimate parliament. We must just rubber stamp, have a sweetheart a moment, and not fight with the president that is trumping the constitution and everything that this country represents. So it will be wrong to mislead South Africans and say there's a problem of rules in parliament. There's a problem of the speaker of parliament and many of the presiding officers who are willing to do everything in their power to protect President Zuma and the executive from radical scrutiny by their peers in parliament. Because that's what they're supposed to do. They are not supposed to be hierarchical and, you know, we, we stand and we bow to them. And there they are supposed to be held accountable about the decisions that they make about South Africa. We engage as peers. And they want to handle that meeting like an ANC caucus. It can be. Well, we're going to move on because I want to touch on some of the um, nitty-gritties of the last night's sonar. Moving of um, parliament or, you know, having one particular capital to cut um, you know um, some of these administrative and other costs because it is tough in the economy right now so austerity measures was always going to be on the table what was your take on that well uh, remember President Mandela tried to <coughs> past and it didn't work but at the same time I think uh, even the example that President Zuma made last night had more to do with the executive rather than with ordinary MPs it's going to cost us a fortune firstly to move Parliament to Pretoria but secondly remember if we did not have such a big executive, I don't think many people would have to have two cars because none of the MPs have two cars. So say if you were to relocate, for instance, Parliament to Pretoria, remember the issue is that uh, most MPs still come from all over the country, so they'll still have to pay for travelling, they'll still have to pay for accommodation. The issue here is that they need to cut down the size of the cabinet so that they don't have to buy a lot of two cars and, and so on for people. Uh, that is a problem. I think the, 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 the executive has a tendency of, of trying to to come up with easy solutions. You know, I think their problem is that they have a parliament in Cape Town in a, in a province that is actually governed by an opposition party. And and they think now they want to consolidate their power base by actually moving everything to, to how <coughs> we will never support such a decision. It makes no sense. It would make no sense because of the amount that would have to be spent putting in the infrastructure and so on, trying to make sure that we have a parliament there. It makes no sense at all. So you say the solution is cut the cabinet, trim the cabinet. That's among others, yes, obviously. John Cianason? Yeah, of course. And we've said, uh, we've released a document this last week uh, on how you can reduce the cabinet to 15 ministries. President Zuma has the largest cabinet in the world at a massive expense. And uh, if one looks at the, um, at the output of the cabinet and the current state of South Africa, it clearly shows that we're not getting value for money. But I think we mustn't be distracted by this argument. It was a complete red herring thrown out by President Zuma last night to distract the nation from the real issues around mm. jobs and the economy and the failures of his administration there. He knows well enough 
that they've spent the massive um, contingent, <coughs> contingency reserve on the public service wage increase. That's why there's no money for the drought. They're not going to find the money to be able to build a new parliament and all the buildings and ancillary requirements for that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a complete pipe dream at the moment. They just don't have the money. This government has run out of money. From the EFF, is there any merit in Look, that? Uh, Sakina, we've elected to uh, to engage this administration through the problem of President Zuma. It's, it's really a, a waste of a lot of time to engage with uh, a person that does not respect his oath of office, who does not respect and take seriously the things that he presents to us. On many occasions, we've been accused that we must give President Zuma a chance to speak. Sometimes we have and sometimes we have. And what you have is a is a is like a record that has a scratch and no new ideas. If there are ideas, they are stolen. Uh, you know, it's we've said Parliament must move to Cape Town. We've said that you must cut the. Well, we've said these things, but what you have, the first step towards fixing the problems of South Africa is that President Zuma must resign. The guy is wasteful, he steals, and he does not respect the mandate of South Africans. And now he's no longer leading with the collective. He must resign. If, as an ordinary South African, I had stolen money, or money of the taxpayers' money, uh, of the taxpayers was used in the way that it was used in Uganda, then I go to court, the highest court in the land. I say, no, I was wrong. I should have implemented the public protector's report. When I went to Parliament and said it's just a recommendation, I said, no, 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 it's actually binding. Only a court of law can amend it. I do all those things. As a president, why am I still hired? Why are we having an inconsistent application of laws in South Africa? It doesn't give for a good example of the rule of law. That's number one. But President Zuma inspires nothing. He inspires nothing. There's no single investor that will come to South Africa to do business because they don't know what's next with him. So cost-cutting measures, any ideas were engaging in a useless act, number one, of indirectly legitimizing a person that does not see us as worthy, does not respect the mandate, does not respect South Africa's laws. Secondly, we're engaging with old ideas. I mean, it's ceremonious. He comes there, he, he speaks, he speaks, he speaks, half the things he says he doesn't mean. We're going to be back here. Half the things he said last year were not done. And, of course, uh, many South Africans agree with him rather than the three of your parties. Oh, so we'll come back to this after this break. <laughs> the Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. And on the forum this this morning, we are unpacking and analysing the State of the Nation Address with the Democratic Alliance's John Steenhazen, uh, the EFF's Mbuiseni Ndozi and Ngawayomzi Kwankwa from the UDM. Now, um, before that, uh, the break, we spoke about uh, the uh, capitals and austerity measures. And um, can we talk a bit about the economy? Because uh, less than 1% growth forecast for South Africa how do we solve this problem? Because I think we can't disagree with President Jacob Zuma in that it's going to take all of us a collective effort in order to basically make headway here. But if we were to be, let me ask this first. Do you think the president went far enough yesterday to try and put us on the right tra trajectory towards finding solutions? Well, the answer to that question is an emphatic no. 
Simply because, remember, the president, when he started talking about the economy, he painted a very big picture, which we already know about. And he also highlighted some of the challenges at domestic level insofar as the economy is concerned. And then he created anticipation by saying we're going to, you know, come up with a turnaround plan. And then after that, he said, you know, exactly the same things that they've been saying for the past 20 years. <coughs> Um, uh, for instance, most of the measures, including, for instance, the small business development, he said we must empower small businesses, and that was it. But the problem is that if sub-Saharan Africa is able to grow at an average of 4%, why can't we do it? The second question is that, remember... Why can't we do it? I will it? answer that question, don't worry. The Remember last year, for instance, the, 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 the meeting with the investors, for instance, by President Zuma was done cleverly, because remember... He said in his nine-point plan last year that uh, they needed to work closely with the business sector and try to make sure that uh, we get foreign direct investment, even domestic investment. So he set the target last year, February, but he only met with them on the eve of the State of the Nation address. And then we expected that he would actually close about it as if government has actually achieved anything by just having a meeting with the people instead of making sure that they implemented it almost immediately after last year's SONA so that he could could have something concrete to report on yesterday, but he did not. Now, if you have a president, a president that can fire people, ministers, just like that without considering the consequences on on the economy and its impact, you can't obviously have people who will take it seriously to invest money into our economy, into our country. But remember, the economy works is, is a matter of leadership and confidence. I, I'll give you an example. Um, after the few things that happened last year, and including the firing of the minister, there was an investor in renewable energy who said, you know what, I'm going to hang 10. I am not going to put money into an economy where there's a lot of uncertainty where there are problems with policy coordination, where one government department does not know what the other government department is doing, where one on one instance you'd find a government that would say, well, we're marching left <coughs> and then left right. So there must be consistency in, in terms of what they want to do. But the other problem, obviously, has to do with the fact that uh, we keep on saying that uh, if you were listening to President Zuma talking about African issues and Africanism and what we're going to do, you'll find that there's no clear strategy once more as to how we're going to uh, remain or keep our position, maintain our position as a port of entry for trade into Africa. Uh, because I think we, we, we're rapidly losing that because of some of the wrong policies that we've put in place. But the other issue, Sakina, has to do with, obviously, with the fact that, remember, uh, President Zuma is failing in all respects when it comes to economic indicators. Look at economic growth. Look at the levels of unemployment, which are very high. Look at the public debt. Are there no mitigating circumstances like the global economic downturn? The fact that it's not just South Africa, everybody is struggling economically. That's the argument that President Zuma and his ministers continuously try to make. But if one looks at our neighbours, in our own neighbourhood, in SADC, while the economy is growing at 3, 4, 5, 6%, and ours has now been revised down to almost below 1% growth, it clearly shows that the President and his Cabinet are not <coughs> focusing on the economy. Instead, they are focusing on looking after themselves and passing legislation continuously that deters investment and Such drives as? down job creation. The, the CIRA bill, the Protection of Investment Bill, uh, there's so many of these pieces of legislation that they bring to Parliament continuously. The visa regulations. Tourism was the only industry that had uh, reflected growth of 8%. And what do you do? One industry that's actually flourishing, you go and overnight almost destroy it by putting in bizarre, ridiculous 
uh, visa regulations, which you now have had to backpedal on anyway. It's a, comp- it's a government in crisis. It's absolutely got no direction. It's completely rudderless. It's got a leader who spends 90% of his day worrying about how he's going to protect his own skin rather than protecting the people of South Africa but and this economy. But is it solely the responsibility of government to make sure that we do see, you know, some uh, reinvigoration into our economic prospects? No, not at, not at all. I mean, I, th- I think there has to be a partnership between uh, government and business and uh, the skills sector. You need that cooperation. But what we have is, is a president that doesn't has a tin ear when it comes to the concerns of big business and how, and, and and what we need to get this uh, get this economy working again, and continuing on its on its own path. I mean, what what the president did last year with the with the finance minister and the sacking and appointment and reappointment is completely destroyed the confidence that both local business and investors have, as well as international investors looking at emerging markets as destinations for investment uh, or to you know to come in and, and place their factories or uh, or um, companies and it, it's a major deterrent they look for stability and they look for rationality when the president behaves in an irrational way and his cabinet ministers do irrational things it is a major deterrent for that type of investment. We won't grow this economy if we don't attract investment into South Africa. We say, what do we need to do to attract investment into South Africa? No, 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 no. <clears throat> we, we've got to, uh, the, firstly, to focus on growth. It's a bad economic strategy. It's been in place as a philosophy and an, a strategy since 1994. What you have all the time as a problem is you grow the economy, but you don't have jobs. You can, you can grow an economy even at 5%, but you don't have jobs. We've been there. And we've been there. So the problem is not whether the economy grows or not. The problem is how do we do the things that get our people to go to work? And and we think that targeting growth as opposed to targeting redistribution is uh, is a problem. So there are, there are a whole set of things that have to be done. And unfortunately, we have to take a radical redirection of the macroeconomic framework. You've got to focus on local beneficiation aggressively. That's why the nationalization of mines is key. The owners of the mines at the moment have no interest in local beneficiation. And that's where there are jobs, not just jobs, but manual jobs. Jobs that don't need a lot of education. Um, that's number one. Number two, Before all the things... Before you go to number two, because part <clears throat> of the problem... I'm giving you a plan for creation yes, of jobs. Yes, but hold on. I, I, I want to dissect that plan, but I'm told mm-hmm. we need to go to news. So we'll come back and do that. Because we tend to throw around all these fancy terms and all these platitudes. But what does it mean when you talk about the uh, beneficiation of locals? In Can I give you an example? In, in, uh, no, we will come back and give me an example of what that means no in its most basic form. The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. And this morning we're analysing last night's State of the Nation address <coughs> and uh, our guest this morning uh, from the UDM, Mr. Kwankwa, we have uh, Mr. Ndlozi from the EFF and Mr. Steenhazen from the Democratic Alliance. And just before the break, you were going to break it down for us mm-hmm. um, in terms of practical terms. What does it mean when you talk about local beneficiation? Okay, so I wanted to give an example that, for an example, there was a big scandal surrounding Sasol. Firm, which um, has this material that produces plastic, takes all of it to China. They come back and sell it to us. They sell Vascom. They sell every plastic. You can even any ordinary South African can go into the house and look at the plastic products around from the dishwasher, uh, 
container that we use to the plastic that contains the water and all those things. All those products, majority of them are not done in South Africa. They come, they come here uh, for us to consume. And that characterizes the entire, you know, economic activity of South Africa. We're more a consumerist uh, country than a producer. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to lead macroeconomic strategies that force companies to, to locally produce the things that we consume. And to do that, you have to do what every economy that was our size, every economy that needed to grow did, including the U.S., including uh, uh, the Brits. I mean, most of the people in Britain were shocked when we were telling them when we were there about their own macroeconomic history, high tariffs, a lot of support from the state, including a control of credit. That's why you need to nationalize the banks or have a state bank, because you've got to make sure you redirect credit to local business, to local uh, 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 investors, the people that are struggling, but they've got a lot of opportunities within the country. You've got to redirect credit. It's very, it's very hard for people who are doing business in South Africa, particularly who are black, to get credit from, from the private bankers. So you've got to be able to control credit as a government, uh, uh, control tariffs, have a strategic protection of certain industries, protect them so that they can grow and give you jobs. And the industries that we've got to protect from international Competition are the ones that are labor intensive. The last one is agriculture. We're always going to have to eat. And majority of the food that we eat, we have to try and make sure that we, we, we produce here at home. And that thing, one thing about agriculture that is great is that it's very labor intensive. So it's going to give you a lot of jobs with immediate effect. Of course, there's a problem of drought at the moment, but you've got to be able to have a forecast. As soon as we get out of the drought, you've got to reinvest massively into making sure that a lot of... You have to make a list, make sure sardines we produce, we, we, we fish here, we don't get from outside. Lettuce, spinach. You sit down as the trade, as trade and industry. Isolate all the products in agriculture that we have to go into the economy and, and, repro- and produce locally. Then... Target your hospitals, your prisons, and get the retail sector to buy locally first before they buy from outside. You get what I mean? Mm. And in that way, people will go and find jobs. That's the only way. But the macroeconomic policies of the DA, the ANC, and the UDM, they, mm-hmm. they, they advance an economy that is open market. So they are going to encourage low tariffs. In that way, every struggling business can compete internationally. It's going to fall on its knees. And as, as long as we go out there to buy things from out there, it means we're not producing them here. If we're not producing them here, it means we don't have jobs here. So we just become a consumerist society. The whole budget of South Africa of a trillion rands is supported by 5 million tax, 5 million taxpayers. So you need to increase that tax base. To increase it, you need jobs. I, 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 Sakina, honorable clause is misrepresenting the UDM. Remember, we're social democrats. We always talk about state having to intervene in the economy uh, to make sure that it drives growth and so on. Uh, but you can't do that if you don't do exactly what he's talking about. For instance, applying in some industries the infant industry argument, where you, you put in place a certain level of protection for industries to make sure that they don't, you don't expose them unnecessarily. Uh, to compete foreign competition in instances where, for instance, those industries are key to driving your economic growth strategy, rather not your economic growth, but unemployment. 
The issue about beneficiation is also on point. It's very important for that for us to do it in the country. But I think it's more a question of saying how do you protect certain industries which are labor intensive in nature, which will create jobs for you and and and, and make sure that you at the same time create markets for those industries outside of the country so they can start expanding you know, their markets and building their markets and exporting some of the output. Uh, critical to that strategy, obviously, among other strategies that you'll put in place where you'd make sure that the uh, economic fundamentals are in place so that people can have eco- confidence in the economy is to say, uh, use the, 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 the African strategy where you say you want to be a port of entry for trade into Africa, but at the same time, you can't have a situation where other other corporations dominate our space, which should be dominating, where we should be creating opportunities for our companies in the continent in particular. But I think we're just coasting along insofar as that is concerned. It's good for us to say, uh, for instance, uh, we're investing in conflict resolution, and then as soon as everything is, is good in those countries, China walks in and then starts benefiting from our hardware, because that's what we do. But the other issue, Sakina, which is also very important, is uh, the local issue, the, uh, making sure that local communities in particular benefit to uh, benefit from the policies that we put in place, that uh, the localization that Honorable Jose was talking about. So when you social democrats, you're more linked to the left than to the right, actually. Uh, so we're not we're, we're not capitalist in any sense. Just to say, I mean, we we do believe in the open market system. We believe that uh, where it's been implemented in the world, uh, people are more prosperous and more jobs are created. I think we've seen the effects of the type of state-led interventions in places like Venezuela. Venezuela ended up collapsing economies. We've seen the effect of state-owned mines. Uh, Alex Kaur is a very good example of it. Um, not success stories, not a good story to tell. For us, it's all about creating incentives for business to take on people, particularly unskilled people who we need to accept that our, our current education system, both basic and higher education, is failing people in South Africa. We're not producing people who are able to go out into the workplace with skills that business wants to and industry want to um, to take in. So one of, the, one of the suggestions we've made is a youth wage subsidy, which we believe in the first three years of implementation could put 423,000 young South Africans from the uh, ages of 18 to 29 into work immediately, incentivizing uh, business through tax breaks to take on young unskilled workers, train them, um, school leavers, train them, uh, and then impart those skills that they require. Coupled with that with an apprenticeship wage uh, subsidy as well, be able to get um, get uh, unskilled workers into apprenticeships where they're able to pick up their skills and the skills that business needs. Obviously, hand-in-hand uh, hand with that be scrapping seaters uh, who are you know, not doing anything to churn out people who are actually able to go with marketable skills into the workplace. So, can, I, can you allow me to challenge the Chief Weeb on giving me an example of an economy that developed using free market fundamentalism. And I want to challenge him because uh, his best example or the, the, the big leader of capitalist industrialization is Britain. And when Britain came out of the war, they nationalized the entire railway. In fact, not just railway. They nationalized transport, all of it, public transport, the ports, even airlines, in order to rebuild their transport sector. They nationalized. So... And then and, and the growing economies, the most recently developed of the economies, the East Asian tigers, including China, they did Korea, Japan, all of them, they did through state-owned enterprises. Mm-hmm. Huge. The problem is not that you've got a state ownership. If your state is corrupt, um, it, whether it's, it's owning business or it doesn't own business, it's going to collapse your economy. 
the state must just not be corrupt, whether under a free market capitalism or under state ownership. But you can't say that uh, uh, the, 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 there's never been an economy that developed through state participation because the Americans, I mean, America at some point during its manufacturing industrialization in the 1800s had to protect their manufacturing from Britain. Mm. Their tariffs were as high as 40%. And they had a state bank that redirected capital into manufacturing to make sure that they invest publicly. So there's no economy in the world that developed, came into stand on its two feet through free market, free market capitalism or free markets opening itself up to the rest of the world. The rest of the world is better. They're going to clamp you. They're going to produce for you. You need protection. And uh to agree with uh, Honorable Jules on that point, remember all these multinational co- uh, corporations that you see today uh, were built behind walls of protectionism, you know, by, by the role players, for example, by the West and so on. When they were ready to take on the world, then they started fighting and saying, no, we must reduce tariffs, we must level the playing fields, when indeed, uh, in fact, the, the playing fields aren't level. That's because they were trying to secure markets for their own companies in, in our developing economies. We can't accept that. Well, we have to take some calls at this point. 891 Sianda and Guatuguza, good morning. Yes, good morning, Susan. Good morning uh, to, to, to everybody there. Uh, first of all, I want to correct Mr. Ndunzi. We only say that uh, President Zuma does not inspire anyone. President Zuma does inspire hyenas and things. He also inspires, uh, inspires us as Zulus. Take, for example, many uh, students who... who Graduated at such a but he mentions only to uh, in Kosovo so to Tiris because uh, he is from Gondar. The second one, uh, um, former President Khalifa Musa had a talk about public debt. He was ridiculed by the honourable president that uh, took him to the ANC uh, conference in Kosovo Natal. But today he talked about that. Uh, we must also uh, we must also demand that the wives of the president must not be split by the state. Because they have got 135 companies since 2009. We must also demand that we reduce the legal cost. President Zuma has lost every uh, uh, court case except one, the one uh, uh, regarding alleged allegations of rape. Lastly, she did not talk about corruption, mainly because she is a custodian of, of those venues, the venues of corruption and ethical standards, the poor leadership and so on. Therefore, we must, uh, they, therefore, for COVID and EFF to move out of, of the chamber, I don't think it was correct because we all know that Zuba will not come with something new or something positive. Luguza. Begani in the Centurion, good morning. Good morning, Sakina, and good, good morning to your guests as well. Um, Good morning. I, can, I, just, I, just, I just love the way the gentleman understood, answered you very quickly when you said that uh, when they, they, they told you of, of what they think of, of our president. And you, and you, asked, and you said um, clearly the millions of South Africans do not think so. Well, um, I, do not, I do not think that uh, our president would ever have dreamt of becoming a president if we did not we did not have the electoral system that we've had here, we've got now here. For instance, if we have a federal system, he would never, even dreaming, have become a president. So, 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 and I just want to say that you, you've got think tanks there. And I actually feel bad for them because, you know, um, being under the leadership of Zuma, they'll end up with 
brain atrophy because I don't think that guy is challenging them at all. And and the worst the worst thing is this: knowing very well um, about the level of his IQ, he surrounded himself as well with people that uh, are supposed to toe the line, and they, and therefore they're not going to be able to advise him wisely, even if he doesn't know, because they toe the line or they get patched. And so we're not going anywhere really. And I think I think I don't know what what the guys think there at the studio, but I think we need to change the electoral system in South Africa. Otherwise, we're going to be going down the same direction all the time because we must remember we vote we, we voting traditionally. No, but if we had to have two candidates or three candidates that get onto the stage and they debate why they they, they want us to vote for them as presidents, and I'm sure the 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 results will be different, totally different. Uh, thank you so much, Pegani. Tabang in Standerton, good morning. Uh, good morning, Sakina and your guest. Uh, first of all, I just want to congratulate uh, particularly the PAC in terms of influencing the land policy in the country. The PAC has always been emphasizing that uh, Africa belongs to the Africans. And yesterday, the president uh, considered to that by saying he's going to introduce uh, the law the, the, the law in terms of the foreign nationals in owning, uh, in owning land in South Africa. So we, now we understand that um, when the president understands that South Africa does not belong to all those who live in it, but it only belongs to the South Africans. And then my second question goes to Mwisan Ndronzi. And so I was told that before then they went into parliament yesterday, they were singing about land as well. So <clears throat> I want them to dismiss the notion, like for instance in the introduction of the speech that the president started with, uh, in particular with the document that was written by a white man called Rusty Bernstein, the Cape Town Charter that says South Africa belongs to all those who live in it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tabang. <laughs> Let's hear from Majoro in Limpopo. Good morning, Majoro. Okay, we're going to leave Majoro for the moment. Let's go to Menzi. Good morning, Menzi. Hello, Sakina. How are you? Well, and you? I'm all right. Uh, look, man, I just want to comment on what uh, Commissioner Gonzalez has just articulated. But uh, what I want to raise to him is that uh, all these things that he's raising are critical. And to me, I would suggest that as the EFF, we make sure that uh, all these things belong to the ground because you'll find out that many people think that the EFF has a bad attitude, but they do not want to. They actually do not understand its main political agenda because what the EFF is raising in, 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 in all the listeners that are, are, are listening, it is clear, but now there are those who cannot listen to SAFM. So if the theory of the EFF can hit the ground, then believe me, the people will understand that the EFF is actually bringing the economic freedom in our lifetime. Otherwise, all in all, I just want to comment for the clear articulation. It is clear that the EFF is representing the promises of our people. Thank you very much. Mike, you're in Middleburg. Good morning. Morning, morning, Sakin and your guests, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, I take it, Sakina, that you are reflecting on the state of the nation address, uh, but um, my take on the debate seemingly is a bit general. Uh, why am I saying that? Because uh, EFF, for instance, um, walked out. They were not part of the state of the nation address. And um, yes, UDM and the DA were there. Uh, so I don't think uh, that is doing justice on the topic. Uh, 
what is it that they, they are contributing, they are reflecting on? If it is general, we are talking about the economic system in general, then I would understand. But then, lastly, Sakina, the state of the nation address, the president uh, is, is, is mainly dealing with the framework, and then ministers and departments would um, unfold uh, on the details. So uh, the president would not necessarily be in the position to outline all the details, the entire plans. Let us look forward to more details uh, through ministers and, and the departments they are leading. Um, um, Mike, I must just say that I, I don't understand what you mean when you say that this is a general right. discussion because it is focusing on what the president raised in terms of the concerns around the economy. Uh, and, and, and specifically, they have been out, asked to outline, you know, if they think that the president is wrong, what is it that their individual parties would bring to the party? So um, I'm not sure about that, but thanks for your contribution. Tirito and Limpopo, good morning. Hi, I'm not in Limpopo, in the free, in the free state. And good morning from the free, in the free state. Yes. <laughs> I'm in the, uh, I, I just want uh, the chief whip there. Um, to honestly respond to the economic um, policy view that uh, Mr. Ndlozi has just put in there, when he said, specifically the question where he said, can a growing economy, a developing economy, um, grow and develop to the benefit of that particular country without state intervention? Thank you so much, um, uh, Tiriso. Let's start there, Mr. Ndlozi. Well, it, he, he's asking the chief whip. Yes. The only chief whip in here. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, there are two chief whips. It was the point back. I was raising to the fundamental um, policy of both the African National Congress and the DA is based on a, on a fallacy. And that fallacy has to do with the fact that they are historical. They don't, they don't, they don't. They are not students of history. Uh, and this, it, 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 I don't know. It, it, it's also possibly represented by the fact that um, Mr. Steinhaisen and the majority of uh, uh, the DA and the majority of the constituencies that I represent live in uh, almost, uh, analogically speaking, two different economies. Um, South Africa is a developing economy. It needs a lot of protection. When we were in the position that we were in, we must have considered ourselves when we came out of 1994 like a post-World War economy. Uh, And everybody in Europe, post-World War, in order to refix their economies, had huge... I mean, even the general agreement on tariffs and trade across the world was allowing countries to practice trade policy, uh, 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 tariffs policy according to their own local needs. And that has changed uh, since Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, advocated for neoliberalism in the 1980s. So what you have is South Africa being in a position where it needs a lot of state protection in order for its local industries to grow, particularly the local industries that are going to give South Africans jobs. I'm giving a simple analogy. You can't be a cons- if you are a consumerist economy like we are. It means you consume but you don't produce. How do we get to where we produce? 
We have to be protected because we are where we are because we are overwhelmed by developed people who throw their products here. We can't compete with them. What is the solution to that? What did the Americans do when they were in that position? It was in the 1800s. They had tariffs to protect local manufacturing, particularly in the northern states. What did Britain do? They had high tariffs even to protect them against agriculture from the colonies. Mm. That's the history of the world. What well, do, they still have those What do the Japanese do, the Koreans do, the Chinese do? Mm-hmm. They protect. DA, doesn't, DA and the NC don't want to protect local industry. The only way to protect them is to take tariffs high and intervene, literally direct, redirect credit into those industries. How to redirect credit? Credit is either you own a state bank or you tell Standard Bank and the rest of them through hard policies. You tell them you're going to invest in one and two and three. Otherwise, is that what we should be doing, John? No, I don't think it's what we should be doing at all. And I think once you start going down that road, I think you're going to put the economy into even more crisis than, than it is at the moment. I, don't, I definitely think we need to dispel the notion that there's no role for the state in the economy. Of course, the state has to play a role in the economy. It would be silly to think that there's a laissez-faire approach and you know, it's just a free-for-all. But that role of the state should be to be create an enabling environment to ensure that business and uh, industry is able to um, to grow and to create the jobs that go with it. Uh, you know, we we spoke earlier about about agriculture as well. I mean, one looks at what happens when when state-led uh, agency takes over agriculture. I think the Cuban example is a very good one. Uh, Cuba was a net exporter of sugar. Um, the, through nationalization, the sugar industry was completely nationalized by the Cuban government. Within under a decade, uh, Cuba had to become an importer of sugar. So I, I think that we, we, there is a role for the state, but it needs to be one that creates an enabling environment, uh, gets out of business as well, and lets business create jobs. Governments don't create jobs. Nationalization of banks is not going to create jobs. It's not going to stimulate uh, confidence in our economy. Mr. I think the issue, the issue indeed is, uh, I think it's firstly the identification of industries that you consider to be key in your economic growth plan, in your job creation strategy. Once you've identified those industries, you have to protect them, obviously. Protect them, uh, uh, you know, provide them a certain level of protection until they are ready to compete with the rest of the world. But on the other hand, you do so allowing other industries that are doing very well, that can actually hold their ground, for, for instance, in international competition, you allow them uh, to compete on that space without any level of protection because you must also allow um, foreign competition in certain industries that are fine because then it's good for the consumer at the end of the day because it would actually reduce the price and the cost of all the products that you sell. But it's key that you identify key industries. If you look at all the, uh, the Asian tigers, for instance, that is, that is exactly what they did in their countries in order to be able to take their countries out of uh, poverty. And unfortunately, we are out of time. But as President Jacob Zuma said there towards the end of his speech, we cannot change the global economic conditions, but we can do a lot to change the local conditions. And uh, let us work together to turn the situation uh, around. No it can be done. Can be done. You can't argue done. with that, can we you? Can be done. He's the biggest impediment to South Africa advancing. He oh. must well, that's all we have time for. That's where we're going to leave it. Thank you so much to our guest this morning, John Steen Hazen, Democratic Alliance Member of Parliament and Chief Whip, Wiesen Indlozi, EFF Member of Parliament and Spokesperson, and also Ngaba Yomzi Kwankwa, UDM Member of Parliament and their Chief Whip as well. And thanks to you for your fantastic participation as always. It is the weekend. Be safe and uh, see you back on Monday morning. And uh, the production team in Joburg and Cape Town, thank you so much for making sure it went out loud and clear.